Noah was told ahead of time what God was going to do. Decades and decades ahead of time. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna destroy all life on earth. You need to build an ark. It's gonna be you and your family and that's, that's it. Everything else is gonna be destroyed. You look at Moses. Moses was told, you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm gonna send you back to Egypt. You're gonna deliver my people. You're gonna bring them up out of Egyptian slavery, out of Egyptian bondage and into the promised land. And then you have Jesus who was told knew well ahead of time exactly what was gonna happen. He told his disciples it's gonna be like the prophet Jonah and the fish for three days, you know, so the Son of Man's gonna be in the earth and rise on the third day. And he told them we're gonna go up to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be mistreated. And he, gave, he gave them all that information. In all those three cases, and you could pick other biblical ones as well, these men knew exactly ahead of time what God's predetermined sovereign purpose and plan was for their lives. And yet in each and every case, they still put in the work. They still prepared, they still prayed, they still went to all of, of the effort. And, and uh, you might ask the question, why? You might ask the question, some people would, you know, they can't make sense of the idea of, this, of a sovereign God and then our need to prepare. Jesus has just spent 40 days appearing to his disciples. I'm catching you up right now in case you didn't notice. 40 days, that was last week, 40 days with the disciples. He'd been talking to them about the kingdom of God. He told them that, you know, that, that you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna start here in Jerusalem. You're gonna go out to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But you know, hold tight until the Holy Spirit has come. And their response to that is not to go onto autopilot as it might be for us. Again, I mean, I, I hear this, this struggle that people have, especially people that really wrestle with the idea that God is sovereign. And may I just say to you, th there's really not a debate if you read the scripture about whether God is sovereign. Now, how you work it out and those things may differ from one person to the next, but the idea that God is sovereign, that God is in control over his universe, that is absolutely clear from scripture. And so it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, if that's true, if, if it's foreordained, if it's, if it's predetermined, if God is in control and, and God works his sovereign purposes and plans, then why do I need to fill in the blank? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to evangelize? Why do I need to, to work for the Lord? Why do I have to need to worry about sin and temptation? These things, if God is in control, why do I need to do anything? Well, you know, the first answer would be because God says so. That's always a good reason, right? That's a fallback, because God says so. Oh, that's good enough reason for me. But also, because in these kinds of things, God has prepared in advance your preparation. The work you go to, the, the, the effort you put in to prepare. And if we go much beyond that, either we fall into one of two camps, neither one of which we really wanna be in. One would be to deny that God is sovereign. You don't wanna go there, because if God's not sovereign, who is, you? Right? Isn't that what, what people end up thinking? No, we don't, we don't wanna go there, that's not biblical. On the other hand, there are people that sometimes get so deep into thinking about the sovereignty of God that they try to second guess God. You know, they try to put themselves in the mind of God. Well, what could God be doing right here in this? I'm not saying that's always, always a wrong question, but sometimes you just get above your pay grade in that stuff. Sometimes it's just better to hear, what is God telling me to do? Okay, I'll go do it. That's a much simpler way of going at it. Here's the big idea today. We must ready ourselves. You've already got it in the bullets and I realize this so you don't need to really write this, but uh, we must ready ourselves to engage in God's sovereign gospel kingdom business. 
That's a big mouthful, isn't it? I tried to include everything in there, you know? I don't wanna miss something, uh, but that's the big idea. We need to prepare, and there's kind of uh, some steps that we're gonna look at today of preparation for whatever it is that God is calling you to do within his kingdom, yes? So this should apply to every single one of us because everyone that is part of the kingdom should be engaged in their part of doing kingdom business, right? You wanna be prepared for that? Yes, yes, that's the the right answer, good. Okay, four steps. First of all, we need to obey what we know. Uh, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. I'm reading quick because we already had it read for us so well. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All right, Um, what had they been told by Jesus? What was their instruction back in, I think, verse four? They were to remain in Jerusalem, right? Technically, they weren't in Jerusalem when they received that. They were just outside of Jerusalem. They're, they're on the Mount of Olives. And so uh, what's the first thing they do? They get to Jerusalem. Let's get back to Jerusalem. He said, stay in Jerusalem. Let's get back and uh, go to Jerusalem. And they go to an upper room. Does that sound familiar? It seems like a common thing in, 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 in uh, the New Testament that they keep meeting in upper rooms. That must have been pretty much the rental space, the B- Airbnb of its day. Uh, probably not the upper room where they took the Lord's Supper, interestingly. At least Luke uses a completely different word to describe the upper room here than he used there. So pro- it's a big upper room. Now, I know they didn't have social distancing and not quite maybe the same idea of how closely we should pack people together, but they apparently they got 120 people into that upper room. At least if I'm reading the text correctly, that seems to be the context that in that upper room, those 120 disciples were meeting. And you had all 11 apostles. It's one of those rare cases where I'll say, take my word for it. (laughs) They're all there. Uh, You can read the parallels and and, and do all that. And and it's a pretty standard list. The order is maybe just a little different than in the Gospels where they appear, but it's this, this is the 11, which is conspicuously missing the 12. You remember that guy? What was his name? I'm trying to remember. Judas, yes, that's right. Judas uh, is not in that. We should, we should make note of that. You may get tired of me uh, pointing these things out uh, over and over again, but we are not apostles. So as we apply these things, we always have to take that into mind. You and I are not uh, actual apostles, um, and yet we are called, as they were, to continue in the mission, continue in that ministry of taking the gospel to all parts of the world. We have different paths. No two of us have the exact. So when we're talking today about, well, where's God's, you know, how do you prepare for what God's got for you? It's gonna look different for you than it does for me and vice versa or for any two of the people that are in this room at this, uh, yet, and yet we know that we're all engaged in that mission. What's that gonna look like for you? If, our, if I were a prophet and I could tell you your future, what would it be? Your future work in the kingdom of God. I have the privilege of meeting once a week, most weeks. This week I got the, 
the vaccine, so I didn't feel up to it, but uh, most weeks I meet with a, a, a bunch of young guys, sometimes at my house, sometimes uh, other places, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very cool thing. They're all about the age of what my grandchildren should be, but we hang out and we talk and we chat about spiritual things and we pray together and we pray for each other and so forth, and it's exciting to me at this juncture in, you know, in my life because I look at it and I think, these guys have decades ahead of them potentially, Lord willing, decades to serve the Lord and, and who knows what God is gonna do in their life. None of them ask me this because they, they're smarter than that, but if they ask me, well, what's my, what's my future gonna look like, what could I tell them? I, I could tell my experiences and stuff, but again, every, everybody's different. But what I could tell them is that if you wanna prepare for whatever God has in store for you, the first thing you gotta do is obey. Obey what you know. Before you start worrying about, well, what's, what's God's specific plan? Obey what you know. Be, to get ready, you need to do that. And I don't mean by that what used to be almost axiomatic back in the 1970s, we'll say. I think it was common back in the 70s. I seem to see it a lot and hear it a lot that people would say, if you wanna know God's will for your life, what you have to do, how many have heard this, by the way? Just, just show me a hand when I tell you. Before you can go on with what God has as in store for you, you have to go back to the last thing you knew to do and do that first. How many have ever heard that bit of wisdom? Yeah, it used to be said a lot. Um, that's not true. And, and, I, and I, I will say it, first of all, because you're not an infallible um, prophet to where you know exactly at any minute what God is telling you other than the scripture itself. I mean, obviously, if you're in sin, you'd want to, you'd want to put that sin away. But I'm, like, if, 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 if you're 40 and 20 years ago, you thought God was telling you to go on to fear factor, you know, and eat a can of worms and tithe the prophets to the church, um, you know, you don't have to go back and try to make that happen, all right? You can, you can get on with your life. It's basic obedience to the word of God that we're talking about here. Basic obedience to what Christ has called you to. Ask yourself the question, am I seeking his kingdom first? Do I love my neighbor as I love myself? Do I love God and serve God with all my heart and mind and soul and strength? Do I hate sin? Am I killing sin? Get ready by, by putting away known sin and submitting yourself to the will of God. I would say if you know you're in sin and you're, and you're refusing to come away from that sin, you probably don't even need to ask the question of what does God want with my life be, because you're not, you're not tuned in, you're not listening. Obviously, you don't want it at that point. Secondly, we need to come together with God's people in one accord Look at verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The disciples are gathered. They're huddled together in one accord. Not a Honda that we're talking about here, all right? Not Pastor Jay's Honda. Um, they were, what it means it means that they were in agreement, that they were, they were crystallized around one mind and one purpose and, and one impulse. Together they were in agreement about the fact that they wanted to do what Christ had called them to do. They wanted to pursue the kingdom. They wanted to see that kingdom expand. They wanted to see that mission uh, fulfilled. They wanted to wait until the Holy Spirit came so that they would be his witnesses. They were, they were in agreement about these things. Have you ever known 120 Christians to be in agreement about anything? I know, that. I mean, this is a huge miracle 
way before Pentecost, 120 disciples. You've got the 11 uh, previously named. You've probably got the 70 that were sent out, or I would think collectively most of the 70 would be there. Got a ton of women. Don't you love that, ladies? That you, that you, yeah, yes, right? I mean, Luke is very pro-woman. He mentions women a lot and, and more so than the other gospel writers and he names a lot of them and he mentions specifically that, that they're here and you've even got Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers too. How many find it remarkable that already before Pentecost even that you have Christ's siblings there? That's a remarkable thing, especially when you look back to the Gospels because they were always like a thorn in his side. Like he'd be going and doing something and they're like, hey, your mom and your siblings are trying to get a hold of you and you know, borrow some money or whatever. I don't know what they were. You know, they were it was always seemed like they were kind of getting in the way. John's Gospel, John chapter seven, verse five says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And when he was raised from the dead, all of that apparently changed because b- between that time, whenever John meant for John you know, 7, 5, between there and Pentecost, they had come to a different conclusion. I, I, would, t- I would guess that it was the resurrection, wouldn't you? Yeah. And then James, the Lord's brother, ends up becoming a prominent person within the church. In fact, one of the most prominent leaders when we get to Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, it's gonna be James, the Lord's brother, that is really a standout leader in the early church. So, but now the church is gathered, they're in one accord, it's a beautiful thing, And what we ought to see for ourselves in that, I think, is that Christ always works through his body. He works through his church. And I I beat this drum a lot, and and you probably tire of, of hearing it, but as we go through the book of Acts, this is, yes, it's the Acts of the Apostles. Yes, as we spoke about last time, it's the Acts of Jesus. But we could also talk about it as the Acts of the church. Jesus working through the church. He has his people gathered. The very word church means gathering or assembly. It is the coming together of of Christ's people and everywhere, you know, you've got Pentecost. It's the church gathered, right? It's the church gathered. When you have the first missionary journey, you remember how that comes about? I'm skipping ahead, but if you know your Bible, you know that it was a church at Antioch. It became a mission-sending church, and they prayed, and, and, and they, they sent the church out. And then, then you get Paul's missionary journeys. What does he do when he goes and preaches the gospel to a city? He establishes churches. He establishes churches, and he appoints elders in every city where he goes to. That, that is so critical. You've heard it said many times, we, there are no such things as Lone Ranger Christians, and yet so many Christians in America, at least, take that attitude. And I I hear people speak lightly of the value of the church. People have said, you know, theologically, uh, being a a Christian isn't about being in church. And and that's true in one sense, but it's completely backward and wrong in another. Because even though we are saved by grace through faith and that is very much on an individual trusting Christ basis, immediately we are to be incorporated and, and spiritually speaking, we are. We come, if, if we are truly saved, if we've truly believed in Christ, we're part of that, that body of Christ universally and we need the local church. If you wanna see the plan of Christ, his mission take place, you cannot be lackadaisical with regard to church. 
just not how he has chosen to work. He's chosen to work through his people gathered together. And I would encourage you, if, if you, you know, I know I'm speaking to some people through the, the camera today, if, if you're not back, if you're not meeting with the people of God, I would just urge you and say to you, it's not the same thing just to tune in. It is not, I mean, tune, if, if tuning in is to come here and gather, yes, then, then, then we're starting to get at it, but it can't just be watching it on TV. That is not the same thing as being part of the gathered church. That is where that one accord and where, the, where all of the power ends up coming from when the Holy Spirit is poured out. It's poured out on the church. I'm kind of rambling here, but you get the idea. Thirdly, we need to devote ourselves to prayer. They were in one accord, not just in their opinion and not just in their mission and their desire, but they were one, in one accord in prayer. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was job n- number one. We're gonna see this as we work through the book of Acts. Again, we, you know, th- we talked about how the church, you, at, at, how important along the way the church is. Prayer, I mean, prayer precedes Pentecost. Then you have the account of, of, of Peter uh, and, and John and, and, and the arrest and the church prays after they're released for boldness and boldness comes upon the church and they witness and many people are gathered, you know, added to the, to the church at that time and then Peter's arrested again and they're praying for his release and the angel releases him in the middle. I'm giving you the whole book of Acts. I'm kind of getting, kind of ruining it for you. Spoiler alert, I guess, huh? But, but prayer, it just, and, and when they send out Paul and, and uh, Barnabas, again, it's the church gathered praying. They, prayer, why did they spend so much time praying? I'm gonna go back to the sovereignty of God question. Why when Jesus had already told them this is what's gonna happen? Like this is not even in any doubt. You're gonna be my witnesses. And it, and it won't just be, it's not gonna fade out here in Jerusalem. You're gonna be in Jerusalem, but then you're gonna to go to Judea, and then you're gonna to go to Samaria, and then you're gonna to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why pray about that when he's already told you? I'll tell you one thing, part of it is that's what they had seen Jesus model for them. Jesus prayed, baby. Here he is, the second person of the, of the Trinity, God's son, and everything that is made was, was made through him, the scripture says. Without him, nothing was made. I mean, he sees the, the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, and yet, when he's facing all of his trials and temptations, and made, you know, he, again and again, he retreats and he, and he prays finally goes to the garden, he spends all night in prayer before he goes and, and sets out on that course which, which was already predetermined. He prayed, this is what they had seen. I want you to think about this, Grace Community Church. Does Christ want us to share the gospel? Just, just a yes or no? Yes, okay, good. Um, does he want us to build up one another in the faith? Does he want us to reach maturity? Well then why should we pray? Because, well, because that is how God chooses to do his work. God chooses to honor prayer. Is it part of God's sovereign purpose? Is is God in control? Absolutely. But what must we be doing? We must be praying. We must be praying. My last point, which is actually like the last half of the sermon, so sorry, it's not gonna be over that quick. Yeah. We need to deal with moral failures head on. At least it's the juicy stuff at the end, right? That should keep you awake. Peter stands up and he addresses the assembly. We're told in verse 15 again that there are 120 of them uh, there. And he brings up the elephant not in the room. 
um, which would be Judas. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now when you read this passage and what they end up doing with the whole Judas thing, at first this might feel a little dry and I don't mean to offend accountants, Barry, um, but um, it, it, it's just almost like a little bit of bookkeeping. It feels like, eh, well, you know, before we go on, we gotta clear the books, we got the Judas thing to think about and all that. I don't believe that at all. I think this was huge. I, I think this, I, we're, Judas was an epic moral failure. Are we agreed on that? Has anybody come along that's outstripped Judas? When it, I mean, if you're looking for the greatest moral failure, the greatest apostasy, can you look any further than this guy? This is Pearl Harbor for the church. This, this, this is 9-11, and, and apart from the grace of God, this would be the kind of thing that would have destroyed the church before it got off the ground. How many are up to date on this whole Ravi Zacharias thing? Yeah? For those that you don't know, Ravi Zacharias was, I'm sure, the most popular, sort of the premier um, apologist of the modern Christian church of the last several decades. And people appreciated his ministry. I always appreciate, he and I wouldn't have agreed on every single thing theologically, but I mean, most of what he said was just as sound as the pound. And uh, never had any qualms about it. You couldn't turn on the Christian radio without having him come up within what? 30 minutes, an hour of listening, he'd, he'd pop up a little segment or something about Ravi Zacharias. And, and uh, then he died this year. And shortly after he died, we started hearing these, these rumors of, of, uh, of sexual impropriety. And you were hoping it was just a rumor, but his board just recently released a statement on it and they said, you know, we've investigated, it's all true. This guy that was just this great Christian apologist turned out to be a wolf in sheep's clothing when it came to his, the sin in his life. And as far as we know, it was just completely planned, unrepentant, ongoing sin, some of it, some of it even being criminal. Now, how do you think Ravi Zacharias' ministry is going to, to, to handle that from this point on? They could have gone 100 years playing that guy's stuff. And instead that ministry, from what I understand, has pretty much shuttered its, its doors. It's, it's done. That's the end of that. Well, I bring that up not to knock that. I bring that up because that's the potential that the epic moral failure of Judas had for the earth. That was the potential. It could have completely swamped the boat before they ever got past go. For the church to, to move forward, Judas and that situation had to be dealt with. This is bigger than the Paul is dead flap. You remember that. What was that last week, the Paul is dead? Does anybody remember the Paul is dead thing? I'm looking for old gray-haired people here. See, you guys today, you think you got all the fake news, you know, oh yeah, we, we invented fake news. Oh no, no, back in the 1960s, there was this whole thing about the, the Paul McCartney dying and they replaced him and you, you listen to Strawberry Fields and at the end of it, there was a, what did he say? He said he buried Paul. Then they said, no, it's like cranberry sauce or something like that, but anyway. <laughs> I cannot tell you how huge a deal that was like in 1969. Man, we were, we were exercised about that thing. That pales by comparison to the potential that, that I mean, the, the failure of Judas is, is huge. It had to be dealt with. Great moral failures have to be dealt with. You have to get rid of that, that infection, if you will. You have to excise the wound. Even knowing that those problems were ordained for us. 
even knowing those problems were ordained for us. Peter indicates that the betrayal of Jesus, of Jesus by Judas was, was so that the scripture would be fulfilled. How do you like that? Again, why is Jay talking about the sovereignty of God today? <laughs> this, is, this is part of it. You remember that little Greek word I shared with you, and I try not to overdo giving you a lot of Greek words, but there was a Greek word that we kept talking about throughout the book of Luke. It was a little three-letter word called day, uh, delta epsilon iota, D-E-I, if you want it. Um, and it, the way Luke used it, it simply means must on its simplest level, just like must, necessity, communicates necessity. But the way Luke uses it, he invariably seems to use it of those things that are part of God's, like, they, these things are like ordained. These things have to happen. I'll just give you one example from Luke. Um, Luke 24, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, there's the word, must, must be fulfilled. Not to beat a dead horse here, but why if all of this was foretold, why if it had to happen, why, why if the scriptures have to be fulfilled that there would be this person like Judas, you know, why did the church have to waste its time dealing with it? Why couldn't they have just said, you know what? You know, to quote Joseph, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Why, why, why worry about it? You know, it just, it had to happen. So Judas did what he did. Done, end of story, let's just move on. Why couldn't they have just done that? Well, because though it fell within God's sovereign predetermined plan, it was still an evil that had to be dealt with. You, it, it was... There was no sidestepping this. There was no sidestepping it. Peter says, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. It was too close to home. It was too close to home. There were 12 apostles. 12 apostles. That those were these special group of men, these, these men who had been chosen, selected, handpicked by Jesus. He had spent, talk about prayer. He had spent the whole night praying before he selected them. And they were men that had been there with him from the beginning. And, and, and that was a very precious ministry. And, and only 12, only 12 could, could have that. And he had had, Judas, whether we like it or not, he had had a legitimate stake among the apostles. For Judas, on a personal level, this is not going to work out well. The die was cast. He received the recompense of his deeds. Look what it says. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his, how you like this for being graphic? And all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. Judas meets a just and bloody and um, you can't really, you, you could, barely any other word comes to mind that fits except cursed. A cursed end. Um, you look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew talks about him hanging himself. Uh, Luke, kind of the, the way Luke, Luke doesn't mention the hanging part, he mentions that he fell headlong and his bowels burst open. Probably to reconcile those two, it, it probably means that he hung himself and either the branch broke and he fell and he split in two or that he kind of rotted and get bloated and yeah, I'm, I'm making it worse than, <laughs> worse than it in here, right? It's pretty bad. What, what are, the scripture's trying to tell us, Judas didn't have a very good end. It was a, it was a pretty wretched, cursed 
outcome. Just as an aside, apart from the grace of God, you and I would deserve the same. Think about that. We, we don't, this is one of those texts where you go, oh man, let's just choose our words carefully here. This is, oh, this is nasty. But, but that, that's what happens with sinners who betray Christ. Peter wants people to be sober and aware that Judas got exactly what Judas had coming. And he quotes two psalms. Now, let, you, you mark this down like on your notes and go back and look at these later um, to just see it, but Psalm 69 and some, Psalm 109 are very similar psalms. They're very similar. Both of them are dealing with people who persecute the righteous and the innocent, and that, that really they are under a curse of God, those, those that, that are wicked and, and behave in that way. And you'll recognize the words of Peter. I'm gonna quote uh, the actual Psalms as opposed to the, the uh, portion of here in Acts, but you'll hear the same words. There can't be a desolation. There can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. And then 109, may his days be few, may another take his office. The upshot of this is that the way the, 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 the that uh, Judas behaved was foretold, and he got what he had coming. But that could not simply be the end of it. You couldn't just turn Judas into Voldemort. You, know, you remember Voldemort for those Harry Potter people? Yeah. Yes, I mentioned Harry Potter from the pulpit. I, but, uh, you know, Voldemort was the, the really wicked, evil guy in that whole series, and, uh, and he was the one uh, whose name you know, shall not be spoken, that kind of, a, that kind of thing. They, they couldn't deal with Judas in that way. Peter says, look, he, yeah, this guy, he's under God's judgment. We know that, but he was one of the 12, and we have to deal with this. Someone has to take his place. And that brings me to the next point, the next subpoint, and that is, we need to deal with great moral failure even when the solution seems apparent. So the solution is pretty simple. We need a 12th apostle. We need someone to be selected. It says, so one, this is still Peter talking, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. There had to be a 12th man. He had to be someone who had been a disciple. Did you catch that part? When we talk about apostles and why we're not apostles today, this is a very big part of that. Is it just we're in the wrong place of history to be apostles? Those apostles had to have been with him from the beginning. And this is kind of just a parenthesis here, but um, this is not proof that there should be a succession of apostles. Now this is believed in, in some churches, I mean the Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Episcopal Church, even the Methodist Church is somewhat resting on that, uh, if, if truth be told. But it's that idea of apostolic succession that when one apostle died, uh, you know, the hands would be laid on somebody else and they would become his successor. This does not prove that. Uh, you're gonna have to go to church history or something like that to try to make, make a case for that, but this doesn't prove that at, at all. In fact, what's interesting is later James, not James the Lord's brother that we were just talking about, but the brother of John, he's the first of the apostles, gets bumped off really early. 
and uh, no replacement. The need to replace Judas isn't because he died. It's because he abandoned his office. By the way, just because a solution seems obvious does not mean that it is gonna be easy. If Peter had not spoken up, do you think anybody would have tackled this? Peter is that guy, even when he doesn't know how to lead, he leads. That's the danger of being a good leader is you can lead people right over a cliff. Like, I think this is the way to go. Well, he seems to know. And, uh, but Peter actually, you know, it's, it's, he's being bold here, but he's, he's correct. I don't think anyone else would have done it, no matter how apparent and obvious it was. I find in church discipline that this is, nine times out of 10, this is the way it tends to go. The Bible makes very clear that the church is to practice church discipline. It's, it's not even up for debate. I, I could take you to multiple passages that tell us this. And particularly the church is to do church discipline when it is a leader, when there is gross moral failure among a leader, the church is to deal with that. But guess what? Nobody wants to deal with it, ever, <laughs> ever. And, I, 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 and I, don't, I don't have time to recount many of the times when I've experienced this in the church, not, not my own personal moral failure, uh, not saying I'm not a sinner, but, not, I'm, but I'm talking about situations I've encountered where it's involved somebody that was in, in leadership and people are like those three monkeys, you hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, they're just they're like, no, no, no. I've literally had people tell me before, don't do this to the church. Well, what? don't do what to the church? Don't, don't bring out this sin and don't deal with it because the church can't handle it. Seriously, my first church, I had an elder tell me that. Please, please don't do that. So don't, don't do what the Bible says. Right, don't do that. <laughs> it's like, no, of course, you know, even when it's obvious that you're supposed to deal with it, people don't want to deal with it, and we must. We, when there is gross moral failure, particularly unrepentant, you have to hit it head on. And lastly, lastly, see, there is a final point. We need to deal head on with it, even if it doesn't go the way that we hope. We don't always get the outcome we want within the church. And they put forward too, Joseph called Barsabbas, I'll just call it Barsabbas for lack of a better pronunciation, Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you Lord who knows the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. That doesn't sound good. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I find it interesting that they had it down to these two guys. That, I mean, they, they didn't do, like in the casting of lots in the Old Testament, there's a couple places where they cast lots to figure out who the guy is, uh, like the choosing of Saul, you remember that? And then uh, you think back to Achan's sin when they cast lots, and, and pretty much they would like, oh, here's a, here's a tribe, and then here's a division, and here's a family, and then it's, and then it's Achan. Um, in this case, they know already. They've already eliminated everything. They just, there are two people that come to mind, and apparently both men, Barsabbas and Matthias, both more or less, you know, fit the qualifications, other than the fact that they hadn't been chosen originally uh, for being an apostle. 
By the way, the idea that this was a wrong move and that they should have waited on Paul is not true. Can I just put a stake and hit it with a hammer really hard so that nobody keeps saying these things? It was not ever going to be Paul. That is a such a, such a there's nothing at all that indicates that this was a wrong move on the part of the church. Every, the, the entire way Luke presents this is as a positive way of dealing with the issue. And God, in his providence, answered their request, and he gave them Matthias. Um, interestingly, you know, um, both men go on to live, and this is based on church history, so you, know, you kinda can't take it with a grain of salt. We only know so much, and some of these things were passed down you know, centuries after the fact, but from what we know, Barsabbas and Matthias both lived stellar Christian lives and both gave their lives for the faith. So both men were really good dudes. I think Barsabbas' problem was his name rhymed with Barabbas, they're like, who wants Barsabbas? No, it's Justice. Call me Justice. <laughs> like I said, Barsabbas. Who's for Barsabbas? <laughs> yeah, I think that was like a b- bad birthmark or something of that nature that, uh, that just, but don't you think it stung if your name's Barsabbas or Justice or whatever you want to call yourself? Don't you think it hurt? I mean, he might have been like not into it. Maybe they said, well, we're gonna put you up. And he's like, no, 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 I don't wanna, don't wanna be an apostle. They go, hey, your name's going in there, buddy, because I think you got a shot. Um, I, I tend to think he probably would have been, would have been dis- disappointed by the outcome. And yet, the church was unified by this. Can you imagine today if we did this? Let's see, who wants, uh, you know, who wants a, a Pastor Jay? Well, you line up over here and we'll put this other guy over. The, can you imagine what that would do to the church? That'd start a new church, wouldn't it? Guess how that but, but that's the beauty here is that they, were, that they were totally unified in this because they hit the problem head on in that unity and appreciating and caring for that unity. They hit it head on. So brothers and sisters, before we pass go, we need to ready ourselves. Do we have an approach to these things that the original church had? The first thing you wanna ask yourself the question of is, Am I obeying what I know to obey? I'm not saying are you living in perfect obedience to, to, to the, the, the full counsel of the word of God from beginning to end in every, in every specific. There's probably things you're doing, you know, hidden faults that you don't know about. You, I'll, I'll tell you them if you wanna know them, but you can just come to me. I'm kidding, okay, that's a joke, that's a joke. Um, that's a joke, it really is. Um, but, but are you obeying what you know to obey? Or are you in clear violation and disobedience of something that you know Christ has, has made clear in his word and you're just like, no, I don't wanna do that. That's rebellion. You are rebelling against God. Repent of that. Make sure that you are obeying him, as it were. And are you in one accord with the people of God? First of all, if you're not in church, you're not in one accord with the people of God. Let me just say that you can't be in, oh yeah, I get along great with those Christians because I don't hang out with them anymore. Um, that's not how you, that's, how, that's, that's not one accord. One accord is tolerating each other, coming together and being together and rubbing shoulders and offending each other and forgiving each other and, and remaining and not giving up on each other. So are you in one accord in the body of Christ? Are you praying with the people of God? We have so many different ways and so many different forms and, 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 and venues in which in this church we bring people together and encourage people to come together and we pray together. Are you praying with the people of God and are you willing to deal 
with moral failure head on. As most of that's done, I mean, individually we do with, deal with great moral failure in our own life. Um, collectively, at times as a church, we have to actually do that. That may be just you and a couple other people going to someone that you know in, in the spirit of Galatians 6.1 somebody that's caught in sin, it might be being part of an elder board that gets engaged, it might be, it can even be those kinds of times and places we hope are few and far between where someone is brought before the church, their name is brought up before and we have to remove them because, yeah, because they've, they've turned aside. But are you, are you putting, are you preparing for the mission that God has for you personally? If you are in sin, if you know yourself to be in disobedience, in rebellion against God, then can you prepare yourself? It's an interesting question. In one sense, of course, the answer is no, uh, which Jesus kind of dealt with when he was talking with Nicodemus because uh, uh, it has to be by the Spirit of God. But again, we're dealing with the sovereignty of God and then our response to the sovereignty of God. And so if you know that you're not a believer in Christ and you know that you're in sin, then the, then the preparation, as it were, is to start with that act of obedience, which is to believe the gospel. It, it, it is to obey the gospel, which is to turn from all the sin in your life, to turn from your rebellion. It doesn't mean that you, it doesn't mean that you deal with the sin, so as to not be misunderstood. It doesn't mean that you, that you can trash the sin in your own strength. It just means that in your heart you are turning from all of those things, you're confessing them, and you're looking to Jesus Christ. You're seeing in him the savior of the world, and you're seeing your savior, and you put your trust in him. Repent and believe, and then come be part of the people of God. Come in one accord and join us in that mission of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the early church and what a great start they had, Lord, to be in one accord and how we long for that, more of that. Um, as every day goes by, there are more and more ways in which we could find offense in the lives and the, and, and the um, words of our fellow believers, Lord. It's easy to get, it's, it's easy to get hurt. It's easy to get um, wronged, that feeling of being wronged. But we pray for that one accord. We pray for that unity. We pray for the, just the power of the Holy Spirit um, together, Lord, that we might be people of prayer and people of the mission. Um, Lord, I pray for any, any believer who's struggling right now, if they're struggling with a particular sin, Lord, maybe they're struggling because they want the sin and they know they want the sin and they're not even, they're not even finding it within themselves right now to want to turn. I pray, Lord, that you would bring that conviction there in their life and they would just start today in obedience by turning back away from that. I pray the same thing, just slightly differently, for the unbeliever, Lord, that that if there's someone here that needs you today, that, that they would see their life as it is before you. Lord, we deserve what Judas got, and we deserve worse because of our sin. I pray that, that such a one, that, that they would hear this word of the gospel today and turn to you with all their heart, turn away from sin, turn and believe in your son and be saved. For we ask it in his name, amen.